We're here again studying the epistle of Paul to the Philippians, and we're looking at chapter 3, uh, verses 4 through 7 uh, this evening. Glad you're here with us, and we'd like to begin with prayer. Father, again, we are grateful for your word. Father, we thank you that we have such open access to your word and that you have preserved it for us. We thank you for this epistle. Uh, which Paul wrote to the Philippian church, uh, the community of faith there. And we bless you, Lord, that you have preserved it for us so that we can read it and so that we can apply it by your Spirit to our own lives. We thank you that your word is inspired and that it carries the very message that you intend. And so we pray that you would help us as we study it, that we would not only know its meaning as you intend, but that we would be enabled by your Spirit to apply it to our own lives and to our own families and even to our own communities as we seek to walk in the footsteps of our Messiah Yeshua. And Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that we have in this country in which we live here in the United States, that we are free to worship you openly and without fear of being disrupted. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to make this freedom a reality for us. And may we use it for your honor and glory, and may we be a light to the nations of your greatness. So we thank you again, Lord, for your love and for your mercy to us in Yeshua. And we bless you in his name. Amen. As I said, we're looking at chapter 3, and is our custom. We're going to read the chapter I'm reading it out of the English Standard Version this evening. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Messiah Yeshua and put no confidence in the flesh." though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Messiah Yeshua, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Messiah, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the Torah, but that which comes through faith in the Messiah, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Messiah Yeshua has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Messiah Yeshua. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Messiah. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Messiah Yeshua, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, obviously, that is a a very uh, uh, deep 
chapter that we're studying in terms of the meaning of it and so forth. Uh, we ended last week with verse 3 where we talked about not putting, he said, not putting any confidence in the flesh. And he, remember, opens the chapter by talking about the fact that we are the true circumcision. That is, those who have faith in the Messiah Yeshua. Why? Because as we reminded ourselves last week, the whole giving of the sign of circumcision was to Abraham and was to teach that we are not to rely upon the flesh. We're not to rely upon our own abilities and our own works and so forth to gain right standing with God or even to please Him. What pleases Him is when we walk in the power of the Spirit, when we live out the things that He intends us to do by His strength and for His glory. And so Paul is once again approaching this question. Is there a way of simply being a good person, a really good person, and God would accept that as payment for our sins and as entrance into his eternity with him? No. The whole point that Paul is making in this chapter is that apart from the death and resurrection, the ascension and intercession, the work of our Savior Yeshua, who died to pay the penalty for us, apart from faith in Him, apart from accepting what He has done for each of us, apart from that, there is no salvation. And yet, somehow, as we'll see in what He's saying here in these verses, there is something within every fallen human being that thinks that somehow a certain kind of religion, a certain practicing of religion and so forth, is sufficient for us to be accepted by God. No, it is only when our sins have been paid for through the blood of Yeshua and we have received Him, accepted Him by His grace and by faith alone that He applies the work of Yeshua to our account and the blood that he shed, which is infinite in worth, is therefore put upon our account. And it's by his grace and his mercy and by faith in him that we are brought close to him. And the Spirit of God dwelling within us, enabling us as we seek to do away with the flesh, to do away with the sinful nature, and to 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 put it at, at rest, to crucify it, as it were, to put to death the deeds of the flesh. By His power, we are enabled to walk in a way that pleases Him and to give Him the honor and the glory, for He has redeemed us and made us His own so that we have the promise of eternal life. So he says in verse 4, as he goes on to talk about the idea that there's no such thing as enough good works to please God only the works that are done by the power of His Spirit as He has redeemed us and made us new. So Paul reflects now upon his life before he came to faith in the Messiah. He says in verse 4 of our chapter, Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Now, he obviously is not saying that he does put confidence in the flesh. But what he's saying is, if that were the way that God had ordained people to come to him, then surely Paul would have been uh, able to do so. And he explains why. Having stated in the previous verse that those who are true followers of Yeshua and who have been granted saving faith in him put no confidence in the flesh, Paul now uses his own Jewish pedigree to show that if confidence in the flesh was actually the means of gaining favor with God, then he would surely be one who would qualify with top credentials. So he's saying if anybody should have been able to uh, uh, meet the mark of good works to satisfy God and have him forgive sins on the basis of our good works, Paul says, then I'm at the top of the list. Thus, we are to understand that by the phrase confidence in the flesh, 
Paul is primarily referring to his own Jewish ethnicity, along with his former life of diligence to be seen within the Jewish community as fully dedicated to Jewish law, culture, and customs. You know, the more we study this, the more I realize that there still is some of this that goes on in the wider, whatever we want to call it, Messianic movement. There are those who have been told or taught or who have come to the conclusion that if they have some kind of uh, attachment to Judaism, if they, if they practice the very things that Jews have always practiced, that somehow they become closer to God. No. Clearly, we find our salvation to be in Yeshua. Now, when we come to faith in the Messiah Yeshua, truly come to faith, and the Spirit of God is gifted to us and indwells in us, then we, for the first time, would have the ability to put to death the deeds of the flesh and to obey God. And in fact, obedience becomes a growing truth and a growing reality that we are genuinely saved from above and given a new heart, a new life, a new, the new man, Paul calls it, the new person who longs to obey and uh, honor God and seeks to put to death, to put away the sinful nature that continues to draw us to things that God hates. So, Paul now is using his former life as an example of if anyone should have qualified by doing good things, Paul's saying, it should have been him. He says, it should have been me. And he's going to give us his pedigree to prove it. Well, it seems clear then that he is addressing the common thinking among religious Jews of his day that being a good Jew was in fact the means by which a person gained ongoing favor with God. Let me just stop here and say, however, that that is not uncommon generally across the board in what we might call man-made religion. Even in, in the broadest circle of so-called Christian religions, in whatever denomination, whatever, whatever way you want to say it, there are those within that large circle, not all by any means, but there are those who still believe that their attendance at church, that their being a member, going through the religious uh, requirements, continuing to do the religious things that that church or that denomination or whatever uh, requires, that that's how they gain their salvation. Well, this is what the, the Jewish people, uh, not across the board, but in large numbers, uh, the Jewish people believed that they were in because they were Jewish. And that a Gentile could not have any relationship with the God of Israel unless he or she converted, became a proselyte, went through a man-made uh, religious, uh, some kind of a ritual to be given Jewish status. It's not anywhere in the Bible. This is entirely man-made. Why? Because the whole idea of God's salvation as communicated to Abraham was in your seed all the nations would be blessed, not just the nation of Israel. Israel was to be a light to the nations, showing forth the glory of God's grace to save sinners of every nation, of every kindred, of every tongue, of every ethnicity. But, like so many religions, in just pure religion and not something that is true religion, uh, but in man-made religion, there's always the idea that unless you're part of this religion, you're lost. If you join our church, if you join, if you do things the way we do it and so forth, then you're in. That's man's view of saying that somehow I can earn my way into God's grace and favor. But if you can earn grace, it's not grace. God's grace is given freely of his own free sovereign will and his grace is what brings us to him. Well, it seems clear then 
that Paul is addressing the common thinking among religious Jews of his day, that being a good Jew was in fact the means by which a person gained ongoing favor with God. For the person of Jewish ancestry, this meant living in accordance with established Jewish customs and halakha. For the non-Jew, this meant undergoing the rabbinically created proselyte ritual and adopting the halakha of the Jewish sect within which the proselyte was a member. Indeed, the very creation of a ritual by which a Gentile could gain quote-unquote Jewish status was based upon the notion that obtaining Jewish status was the very grounds upon which favor with God was obtained. Now, you can see how contrary to the very Torah itself this is. For at the very beginning, as I've repeated all the time, in your seed all the nations will be blessed, not just the nation of Israel. Well, but in the previous verse, Paul has already stated that, quote, we are the true circumcision, and by using the plural we, he is referring to all who have come to faith in Yeshua, whether Jew or Gentile. This emphasizes that the true entrance into the eternal people of God was not by physical birth, nor by a man-made ritual, but by being born again through faith in Yeshua and the redemptive work he has procured for all who believe in him. Salvation by faith in God's Messiah and His redemptive work is, therefore, the very basis of the Abrahamic covenant, as I've said, the covenant of promise in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Now, again, it's, it's common within uh, the thinking of some people when we talk this way and when I teach this way, they, they almost don't say it out loud, but they kind of make it sound as though, well, then I don't have to do anything. God saved me and I can just go live however I want. No, that's the difference, is that the scriptures refer to salvation as a new birth. We've been born anew. What does that mean? Well, Paul uses old man or old person and new man, new person. The old has, been, has passed away, the new has come. What does that mean? We have been given the Spirit of God, and we have been given a heart that seeks to please Him. And we want to grow in that ability to confess when we sin and to do all that we can to live righteously and not give in to the sinful nature. And when we do that, we show ourselves to be truly those who have been born again, given a new life by Yeshua through faith in Him. So Paul goes on to say, as he looks at his own life, he says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. So addressing this common teaching among the Jewish teachers of his day, that sterling Jewish identity and practice were the means of gaining favor with God, Paul now offers to his readers his own pedigree as offering the highest credentials for acceptance by God. He even goes one step further and establishes the fact that if truly impeccable Jewish credentials and practice were the means of gaining God's favor, then he himself held the key to unlock God's acceptance. In other words, what he's saying, as we all know, if anyone had done this well, he says, I am that person. He uses the word pepoithesis, which is found only in the Pauline epistles in the Apostolic Scriptures, and I've given you the references there in the notes. In 2 Corinthians 1.15 and 3.4, 8.22 and 10.2, in Ephesians 3.12, and then, of course, in our text, Philippians 3.4. And this word carries the sense of a state of certainty about something, to the extent of placing reliance on it, assurance about an outcome or confidence. And that's just the definition given to us in the, in the Greek lexicon. So he's saying... If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Here Paul will compare what was being taught by those who were teaching Jewish identity as the means of gaining favor with God with the scriptural teaching of acceptance by God through faith in his Messiah, Yeshua. But this in itself highlights the truth that genuine confidence in being accepted by God is surely a reality for, as we shall see, after Paul describes his impeccable Jewish credential and proclaims them to be insufficient, he goes on in the subsequent context to show 
that saving faith in Yeshua enables the believer to know with certainty that he or she is fully received by God and will be saved eternally by His almighty power. I've met people in the past, and we know that there are churches who teach this, <clears throat> that you can never be certain of your salvation. You can never be certain that you are saved by God's grace until such time as you enter into eternity with Him. That is not true. The Scriptures make it very clear that we can know that faith is the very substance of the things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children or sons of God. Yes, we can know. Why? Because the Word of God has told us what's required. And what is required? Faith. Faith in Yeshua. And faith is not the works that we do well. Faith is the fountain from which the Spirit works in us to change us and make us to do things that are pleasing in His sight, to live in a way that's right with Him. So, can we know for sure? Yes. And Paul is... is uh, that's the very basis of his argument here. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saves us. This is the very heart of Paul's message throughout his epistles. It also emphasizes two more important truths. First, that no one will be able to satisfy God's standard of righteousness through their own station in life, nor through their own efforts at pleasing Him, whether Jew or non-Jew. Because if Paul has come to the conclusion, and rightly so, that there, even though he was all that a Jew should ever be, it was not sufficient, it was not enough, then when he's saying that he does have reality, we know that he's saying by faith we have this assurance. And this now is inspired scripture. But secondly, Paul is not in any way diminishing the truth that God has chosen Israel as his chosen people and that he maintains his covenant promises to the nation of Israel. His primary point, however, is that Jewish identity does not procure eternal salvation for anyone. Indeed, only faith in God's Messiah Yeshua procures right standing before God and the promise of eternal life with Him. And Paul now presents his own sterling credentials as proof of this. So what I'm saying here is, he's not in any way dismissing the importance of the nation of Israel and of the Jewish people. But what he's saying is, both Jew and non-Jew, having come to faith in the Messiah, Yeshua, have the same standing as being in Yeshua. The Jewish person or the non-Jewish person, neither one, has greater access or more love of God than the other? No. We are one in the Messiah. And this is why Paul can say there's neither Jew nor Gentile. Well, of course there's Jew and Gentile, but he means that when it comes to having the grace and the, and the uh, saving power of God, all who are his are equally his, and all who are his are equally endowed with the Spirit of God to live for him, to serve him, and to give him honor and glory in their lives. This is why the idea that, uh, and I mentioned this last week in our time, the idea that there are some Messianic groups that give a precedence to Jewish identity is to undermine the very message of the gospel. And so we should all agree that both Jew and non-Jew are equal in the sight of God in terms of being in the Messiah Yeshua, being cleansed of their sin, being given the Spirit of God, and given the ability to please God and to honor Him in all aspects of life. So now Paul gives his credentials. <clears throat> he says, this is verses 5 and 6, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the Torah or the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, 
as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Well, there seems to be a clear structural pattern to the seven qualifications Paul lists. If we take the first one, circumcision, as a primary element in the listing, in other words, more or less covering everything, then the remaining six are in two groups of three, and each group ending with a climax. So, we're talking about circumcision as being that sign of not, um, well, from a Jewish perspective, it was the sign of being Jewish or being a proselyte, being given Jewish identity. From a spiritual perspective, however, in the scriptures, circumcision has to do with not trusting our flesh, not trusting our own ability, having that cast away and trusting only in God's grace. This is why the scriptures can refer to circumcising our hearts. In other words, trusting fully that what God has said is true and resting in our assurance that faith in Yeshua has made us members of God's family forever throughout eternity. So, we take circumcision as kind of an overarching um, reality. Now, let's see how the other six fit together. Paul says he's of the nation of Israel. And then he makes it more specific. Of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he gives what would be a climax. Being of the nation of Israel and of the tribe of Benjamin, he considers himself a Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, you could not be more Jewish than Paul. (laughs) He is at the very height of what it means to be Jewish from a typical human standpoint. Then, the next three, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. So he's saying, I was a member of the Pharisaic group, which is what? Those who went to the nth degree to find the smallest thing that needed to be done in correct ways, at the correct time, and so forth and so on. And as to zeal, not only was he zealous in keeping all of the the laws, including the man-made laws and the way they were to be uh, done and so forth, all the holocaust done just the way it was supposed to be, but he also showed his zeal by trying to persecute those who were, from his vantage point, against the Jews, or teaching a different message about what it means to please God, who were saying that you didn't have to be Jewish in order to please God. And he was so zealous for what he believed to be true at that time that he was regularly persecuting these people who were teaching a different message. And then what's the conclusion or the climax of this uh, group of three? As to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. So he's a Hebrew of Hebrews and when it comes to keeping Torah, he's perfect. He's found blameless. It doesn't mean that he never failed, but when he did, he did what he needed to do to overcome it by giving a sacrifice or uh, paying back what he needed to pay back or whatever it may be. Thus, Hebrew of Hebrews and found blameless marks the top rung of true Jewish identity as far as Paul is concerned. Let's look at these a little more closely. Circumcised the eighth day, of the nation of Israel. The Torah makes it clear that a male child is to be circumcised on the eighth day. We read it in Leviticus 12, 2-3. Speak to the sons of Israel, saying, When a woman gives birth and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as in the days of her menstruation she shall be unclean. On the eighth day the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. However, There is nothing in the Torah that teaches that if one is unable to circumcise a male child on the eighth day, that child will be cut off from his people. Indeed, now, what what the Torah is saying is, if you just totally neglect it and say, you know, it doesn't matter, well, that's a different situation. But if you're unable to, then what happens? Indeed, during the wilderness wanderings, Many of the Israelite males were not circumcised, since to do so during a time of difficult traveling may have brought special hardships and even posed the possibility of the child dying. Therefore, we read in Joshua 5, 1-9, of those males who were born during the forty years of the wilderness wanderings were circumcised before entering the promised land. The Lord made 
uh, this proclamation to Joshua. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so the name of that place is called Gilgal, which means to roll away uh, to this day. Okay, so basically, this is an example in Scripture itself that those who had not been circumcised on the eighth day were circumcised when it was able to be done and uh, rightly done, and it was accepted. Yet in the pseudepigraphic book of Jubilees, dated just prior to 100 BCE, we read, And anyone who is born, whose own flesh is not circumcised on the eighth day, is not from the sons of the covenant which the Lord made uh, for Abraham, since he is from the children of destruction. Now, is this something that Paul would have known uh, before his coming to faith in the Messiah? I would imagine he would have. It was a well-established pseudepigraphic meaning, not scripture, but was trying to uh, gain a position of equal with Scripture, even in the time of Paul. It seems quite clear then that some in Paul's day were teaching that failure to be circumcised on the eighth day meant that that person has been cut off from the covenant people of Israel without any means to regain a covenant standing. Given this reality, Paul emphasizes his eighth day circumcision as fulfilling what a prevailing teaching in his day required. This is why he says circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, he's saying, we did it all according to exactly what was to happen. Now, the next is of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul does not use the Greek laos, people. He doesn't say he's of the people of Israel, for this would include proselytes in the minds of religious leaders. Even a Gentile who converted, as it were, to, uh, to Judaism, would have been considered part of the people of Israel. But Paul doesn't use that term. He says, of the nation of Israel. He uses the Greek genos, family, or people group, or ancestry, to emphasize his true Jewishness as a matter of his very birth and being. So, his pedigree is perfect, and it gets even better. Moreover, when he emphasizes of the tribe of Benjamin, he is pointing to the fact that his ancestral heritage has been maintained throughout the millennia, for it is only as the family passed this information on from one generation to the next that it would have been known by Paul. Further, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, was the only son of Jacob born in the Holy Land, according to Genesis 35, which likewise may have emphasized an enduring and strong attachment to the land. So, Paul once again says, if it just comes to a religious kind of an approach to things, if we can use religious in a kind of a worldly sense, then he says, so far I have all the right marks. I have A plus in my uh, card every time someone asks. Now then he says, a Hebrew of Hebrews. This would seem to indicate that both his father and mother were bloodline Israelites. It wasn't just his father or his mother, it was both. He was a Hebrew, the son of Hebrew parents. But this designation may also disclose the fact that Paul identified himself as coming from a family that avoided the assimilating influence of the Greco-Roman culture, and thus spoke Hebrew or Aramaic as their primary language. We know that when God encountered Paul on the Damascus road, he spoke to him in Hebrew or Aramaic. It says in Acts 26.14, And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect. Now, in the Greek it does say Hebrew, but that that word, um, ebredi, could also indicate from a Greek perspective, Aramaic. In other words, it's a, it's a, a Hebrew-Aramaic mix, and we know that that was spoken in the, in the first century because Israel had come back from Babylon, uh, and the, they were there for 70 years, so the next generation and perhaps the next were not very well versed in Hebrew. They had picked up the language of the country and the land in which they had been exiled. 
And so when they came back, Aramaic became a very important part of the Jewish uh, culture. So when he fell to the ground there uh, on his way to Damascus, the voice said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. But it says very clearly, Luke makes it clear, that it was said in Hebrew, or we could say perhaps Aramaic. One thing that uh, I think this tells us uh, as an aside, why would Paul say Hebrew of Hebrews? If everyone was speaking Hebrew, that wouldn't be something that set him apart. I think it is very clear by all of the information that we have, uh, whatever has been discovered of the first century, by way of what was the lingua franca of uh, Israel at that time, it was Greek. Greek was the predominant language. And this was, of course, why the, uh, there was the call, one of the reasons why there was a call for translating the Tanakh into Greek. I know it was done by a, a, uh, by a Greek uh, uh, governor, but uh, at the, I should say, at the behest of a Greek governor. But nonetheless, why put it in Greek? Because everyone was speaking Greek. And this is also why the Apostolic Scriptures would have been written in Greek. Those that say that the Apostolic Scriptures may have originally been written in Hebrew or Aramaic, there is not one shred of evidence to that effect from ancient times. In other words, we don't have any ancient manuscripts that would indicate that. So when he says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, he means not only that he was raised in the, in, as, as a Jewish Hebrew, that his parents were Hebrew, but that they also did not assimilate to the Greco-Roman culture by taking on the language and so forth and so, so on. Likewise, we see Paul twice addressing a hostile Jerusalem crowd impromptu in Hebrew or Aramaic in Acts 21.40 and 22.2. Thus, even his mother tongue gave proof that he had not assimilated to the Greco-Roman culture in which he lived, but remained, remained in every way an Israelite. Now, again, what I think is that for him to bring this forward, Hebrew of Hebrews, as indicating that he spoke Hebrew and or Aramaic, would mean that it set him apart or above the majority of others. This would make sense, especially if Greek had become the general language that most Jews were speaking at this time. Then he goes on, as to the law of Pharisee. The party of the Pharisees were known for their keeping the law in even the most minute detail. According to F.F. F. Bruce, the Pharisees were the spiritual heirs of the Hasidians. The Pharisees, who first appear in history late in the 2nd century B.C., seem to have been the spiritual heirs of the Hasidians or pious groups who played a noble part in defense of their ancestral religion when Antiochus Epiphanes set himself to abolish it. Well, okay, we're familiar with that when we celebrate Purim and so forth. So, the Pharisees uh, were those that wanted to keep the Torah no matter what it cost. Moreover, the Pharisees were known for separating themselves from anything that would convey ethical or ceremonial impurity. And according to Luke, Paul was trained under Gamaliel, the leading Pharisee of his day. He records Paul as stating in Acts 22, verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God just as you all are today. And just to prove the level of his zealousness for his Jewish religion as a Pharisee, he goes on to say, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. In persecuting the people of the way, those who had confessed Yeshua to be the true Messiah, the Son of God, the Eternal One incarnate in human flesh, Paul had shown himself to be extremely zealous for the Pharisaic traditions by leading the charge against the believers in Yeshua with the hopes of destroying the sect altogether. In Galatians, he describes the measure of his zeal in persecuting the believers. He says in Galatians 1, 13-14, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, 
how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Thus, no one could question his previous life of zeal for that which gave definition to the Pharisees, who believed that their fidelity to Jewish traditions and laws secured their rightful place before God and guaranteed his blessings upon them. And, of course, also, the Pharisees were at the forefront of saying that apart from Jewish uh, identity, that is, either born Jewish or uh, going through the Pharisaic, uh, the man-made ritual of becoming a proselyte and giving and having been given Jewish status. Apart from that, there was no place in the world to come for anyone. So this was clearly the teaching of at least some of the Jewish sects in the early centuries and in the first century, that apart that only those with Jewish status would have any uh, approach to God and could claim a future and an eternity with him. And this is at the heart of man-made religion. And I'm just saying that I hope and pray that those of us who have uh, taken this path of seeking to obey God by obeying the, the commands of Torah to the best of our ability and what we are able to do by keeping the Sabbath and etc., 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 I hope that we never come to the point where we're saying that my doing this is what's gaining me favor with God. Our obedience to God's commandments is primarily to give Him the glory, not to take glory unto ourselves. And I hope that um, we recognize that God is at work in bringing both Jew and Gentile into his family. And that when he brings us into his family, we are equal in the Lord. And he loves us equally. And he has saved us equally by the power of the death, resurrection, ascension, and intercession of his Son and by his own sovereign will. So, we should accept that reality that we are all one and all new in the Lord. It doesn't mean that the Jew loses his or her Jewishness. No. How can all the nations be blessed unless the nations are represented? This is the message of the gospel. He goes on to say, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Here we see Paul using the language he would have used before coming to faith in Yeshua, for he is recalling his perspective with regard to the law or the Torah at that time. We could therefore understand his words this way, as to legalistic righteousness I was known for being faultless. In the following verses, Paul makes it clear that what he formerly considered to be the means by which a person stands righteous in God's eyes, he now repudiates. But here in our, or this text, he is listing all of the important things that would have qualified him as righteous in the eyes of the most zealous Pharisees. His point is obvious. If anyone could have expected to be received by God as righteous on the basis of religious observance and compliance, Paul would have been that person. Clearly, his ultimate point will be that if he would be dismissed by the Almighty as unworthy to be called righteous, surely no one would be able to claim right standing with God on the basis of the religious acumen and fervor. In other words, very simply, if Paul says, as, as seeking to find righteousness by my own power and ability and whatever, I'm at the top of the heap. People could hardly reach the heights that I had in trying to save myself through good works. And he said, it's impossible. And if it's impossible for Paul the Pharisee, it would be impossible for anyone. And then he concludes with this wonderful statement, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Messiah. 
One could imagine, after hearing the full description of Paul's zeal and commitment to his former religious commitment, that he might still be somewhat proud of his past diligence and religious observance to Pharisaic requirements, but such a notion is swept away by his words in our verse, whatever things were gained to me. Before God's grace descends upon one he has chosen for himself, all manner of things which feed the sinful nature and pride are valued and sought after. This is especially true in those instances where humanly focused religion is that for which a person strives. Paul was considered a model Pharisee, and one that others would seek to emulate. From the perspective of fallen humanity, Paul would have been lauded by his peers for his advancements in their religion, and he no doubt prided himself on having attained such a high position in the eyes of others. You know, it's, it's just amazing to me how watered down the gospel message has become in our day. Now, I'm not saying it across the board. I know that there are many who are uh, biblically based and seeking to give that biblical message. But the number of religious institutions throughout the world that have a tendency to have people understand that their attachment to their church, their, their attachment to their religion is what is going to stand them in good stead as they stand before the Almighty. There are many, many people who think that their religious observance is what God will count as entrance into his eternity. And we have a great mission before us, don't we? To carefully but boldly give forth the gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of God's glory, the gospel of the need that there is only one way for sins to be forgiven, for only one man has ever walked on this earth who himself was without sin and infinitely righteous and therefore able to save a host of people that no one could number by paying their debt of sin. What is the payment that he made? If he is infinitely holy, then dying for all whom he would save, his death is infinite in value. And this is precisely what we read in the Scriptures, that where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. So when God grants the gift of faith, he opens the eyes of our understanding to know what pleases him and what is contrary to his grace, mercy, and holiness. Thus Paul solemnly confesses that what had been the very basis of his own pride he now recognizes to be of no value and even worse of that which had kept him from seeing the truth about Yeshua as the Son of God, the Messiah, sent by the Father to procure eternal redemption for all who have been given to him. Yeshua said, You remember, all whom the Father has given me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. And he also says, I will lose none and raise them up at the last day. Isn't that a wonderful truth? I've been reading again this uh, book that was published by a well-known uh, Messianic group. And it it is seeking to undermine the very foundation of the faith that Paul is here describing. It doesn't say so in so many words. But it's basically saying faith is not enough. Grace is not enough. And so forth and so on. It's alarming. How is it possible? It also says Scripture is not enough. And that's where it all begins, isn't it? If we give away on Scripture, then where do we stand? Where do we have any firm foundation if the Scriptures are not that very foundation? And when we give way on the Scriptures, we give way to all manner of errancy. And I just, I'm so uh, grieved at this. I hope and pray that the message of God's grace in Yeshua, based squarely upon the Scriptures, continues to be a hallmark 
of our local communities and of our own families and where we worship together and so forth and so on and that those who teach would be prompted to teach this as not something that everyone agrees with but as that which is based upon the scriptures. So, Paul solemnly confesses that what he had been, that that what had been the very basis of his own pride, he now recognizes to be of no value, and even worse, of that which had kept him from seeing the truth about Yeshua as the Son of God, the Messiah, sent by the Father to procure eternal redemption for all who have been given to him. In this, Paul recognized that all those things which he considered to increase his value in God's eyes were, in fact, keeping him from the truth of God and were actually scorning the very one he thought he was serving. Calvin notes that when a person believes their own righteousness is sufficient to be pleasing to God, this blinds the person to the truth of the gospel, which proclaims an imputed righteousness on the basis of faith in Yeshua. This is why Paul is his, his well-known phrase, in the Messiah, if anyone is in the Messiah, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. What does it mean to be in the Messiah? It means that when the Father sees us, he sees us in his very Son, within the very righteousness of Yeshua himself. And he is working to bring us more and more in line with that righteousness. So we will end with this quote from Calvin. He says, Those things accordingly which had been gained to Paul when he was as yet blind, or rather had imposed upon him under an appearance of gain, he acknowledges to have been loss to him when he has been enlightened. Why loss? Because they were hindrances in the way of his coming to Christ. What is more hurtful than anything that keeps us back from drawing near to Christ? Now he speaks chiefly of his own righteousness, for we are not received by Christ except as naked and emptied of our own righteousness. Paul accordingly acknowledges that nothing was so injurious to him as his own righteousness inasmuch as he was by means of it shut out from Christ. In other words, as long as Paul was counting upon his own religious acumen and his own works and doing, he was blinded to the Messiah. And yet the Messiah came to him, knocked him off his ride, and told him the truth. And in one way or another, maybe not as dramatic as that, but in one way or another, the Messiah Yeshua himself, by his Spirit, has come to each one of us. And open our hearts and our minds to know that only, only faith in him and in his work is that which brings us to Him in a saving and eternal salvation way. Well, that is where we'll close off uh, for this evening. Thanks so much for coming. Glad you were here with us. And look forward to being with you again next week as we study together.